one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 904 for the week of Monday, June 5th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Kat Robinson. Welcome, Kat. Thanks, Sawyer. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be back. Glad to have you back. I know it's been a while. Yes. You'll notice that it's just the two of us, though, for this episode. Gene McCulka and Mark Ratterman are out of town and unable to join us, unfortunately, for this episode, but they will be back very soon. So, let's start off with a little bit of space news before we get into the main thing of this episode, which, hint, it involves a launch. <laughs> but we'll start with some uh, other news first, and that's people that may be launching in the near future. As on the recording date of today, which is June 7th, 2017, NASA officially announced its next class of astronauts. And I'm really excited about this class. It's a really diverse class. Um, scientists, engineers, civilians, people from the military. One that particularly caught my eye was Zena Cardman, who uh, is from Williamsburg, Virginia, but did her undergrad and her master's at the University of North Carolina. And anyone who knows me knows that I love UNC. Uh, go Heels. But she is a research fellow right now uh, working on her PhD at Penn State and she looks at microorganisms and subsurface environments but she's also been an analog astronaut on several NASA analog missions so this is really exciting uh, I think for anyone who follows any of these analog missions and sees the data that comes out of them that helps NASA on missions so I think that you know she comes from a really interesting background there and as well as they have also have one Rob Kulin who is from Alaska, but who has been working since 2011 for SpaceX as uh, leading the launch chief engineering group. So very cool. Yes, all of the people were selected out of over 18,300 people who applied to join this 2017 NASA astronaut class, which not only set a record, it's well surpassed the previous record. That was three times as many people who applied for the previous astronaut class in 2012, and the previous record was held of only 8,000 applicants, and that was for the 35 New Guy era back in 1978. Wow. Guess leaving Earth has never been more popular. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not even <laughs> going to comment on that one. I can go so many ways with that. But all 12 of these people come from all kinds of different backgrounds and everything like that. There are some who are from the Air Force, there are a bunch who are graduate research fellows, people who worked in science backgrounds. So it's not all the Navy military guys. There's a good mix of, you know, professors from MIT and a physician at Mass General Hospital. And a good mix of ages, too. They range in age from 29. There's actually several of them who are 29, all the way up to Bob Hines, who is 42. I mean, again, NASA's hitting it out of the ballpark with their diversity, and it's amazing to narrow it down from 18,000 plus to 12. With that large of a pool, you know you've got the creme de la creme here. Absolutely. At this point, keep in mind, they are just ASCANs. That stands for Astronaut Candidates. They are not officially astronauts yet. They now begin their two-year astronaut training period. And then afterwards, they are qualified to start flying on missions to the International Space Station and, well, beyond. So we wish the best of luck to all of those astronauts who will be flying very soon. And welcome to the Astronaut Corps. Woohoo! Now, uh, you mentioned that all these people really wanted to get off the planet. Well, apparently, a lot of people didn't want to just get off the planet. 
there was buzz that they wanted to fly into the sun. <laughs> that's right, the Parker Solar Probe. Yeah, that's not exactly what's happening, but NASA <laughs> did announce on May 31st that they plan to send a probe to the outer atmosphere of the sun. A probe has never gotten this close before. We are talking with inside the orbit of Mercury is how close it will be getting. This probe has been going on for quite a while as Solar Plus, but just recently they announced it will be named after Eugene Parker, who back in the 1950s, as a young professor at the Fermi Institute, published an article discussing the dynamics of interplanetary gas and magnetic fields, which basically introduced the idea of solar winds. So they were kind enough to name this after him, and he was even there at the naming ceremony. Yeah, and this is really great because this probe will give us a better understanding of solar weather. And those of you who um, listen to the show know that we talk about this every once in a while uh, because solar weather is what can affect our own satellite navigation systems and other systems here on Earth. So understanding more about solar weather and space weather in general um, is really important so we understand how it affects us here on Earth. Exactly. You like those uh, satellites? You like the satellite TV, satellite radio? You like your cell phones working? You like all of your electrical devices working? Yeah, solar flares can knock those out. So it's very important to study that. Exactly. And no, no, no politicians will be fine along with this mission. Yes, I should add that this caught a lot of buzz with that because of, yes, BuzzFeed. I never <laughs> thought in a million years that on this show I would be mentioning BuzzFeed. But they were one of the people who actually brought this into popularity and sparked a lot of stuff on Twitter with it as well. It was because of an Associated Press tweet that claimed that they will be having its first mission to fly directly into the sun, later updating it for <laughs> sun's atmosphere. Yeah, this is not flying directly into the sun. Admittedly, it is getting seven times closer than any other previous spacecraft has to the sun. But there's no seats on board, you can't buy a ride, and you can't send your favorite politician aboard. <laughs> and uh, excited to see this thing fly. It is currently scheduled to launch in 2018. That's launches that were scheduled to happen. There's a few other launches that did happen while we were away. One of those was India, launching their heaviest rocket to date. The launch was of the GSLV Mark III. The rocket itself weighs 640 tons, carrying a more than 3,000 kilogram satellite into space, the GSAT-19. This launch successfully took place this past Monday on the 5th. This was the first launch for their heavy launch vehicle of this kind. It launched from the Satish Dhawan Space Center in India, about 105 kilometers away from Chennai. And by the way, GSLV stands for Geosynchronous Satellite Launch Vehicle. This, of course, being Mark III. I'm really excited about this. India is really doing some amazing things for for a new player, really, on the international stage with space with their successful mission, uh, first nation to ever get a spacecraft orbit to Mars on the first try. Um, I'm really excited about what India is doing, and, and this is exciting. I think this is great news. And the fact that India is joining in on the satellite game. Last time, we had New Zealand getting in on the game as well, with their Electron rockets successfully making it to space, albeit not successfully into orbit. But the Electron launch that past week was another country joining in on it. And now you've got this country here with India joining in with their heavy lift rockets now. China just had their first heavy lift launch recently. India's joining in. The heavy lift launch game is definitely on the rise. Yeah, it's, you know, it's exciting. I, I think just like how we say all the time, the commercial space industry in the U.S. is, is great because there's more and more people getting involved. And, and that's always a good thing to have more players. It's great that we're having more and more nations getting involved because, you know, space as we see increasingly, is an international endeavor, and we need competition, but we also need support and investment from a lot of nations to, to keep moving forward. So, I mean, this is great. This is really exciting to follow what's happening uh, in other nations with their space programs. Exactly. And again, record-breaking for them in terms of how big it is and how much it can carry. However, they don't have the record for the heaviest payload that was carried up into space. That was just set very recently, in fact, 
on June 1st with an Ariane 5 launch. The Ariane 5 carried two satellites, Viasat and Utelsat. Combined, they weighed 21,977 pounds, or almost 10,000 kilograms. That is the heaviest spacecraft stack ever launched into geostationary transfer orbit. The previous record? Also held by the Ariane 5, by the way. Go Ariane 5! <laughs> the two spacecraft as well set another record. Both of them were insured at over 800 million dollars, according to an official familiar with the arrangements. That is the highest insured value in history for a satellite launch. Adding in the cost of the rocket itself, the insurance premiums and everything, this past Thursday's launch cost almost one billion, with a B, dollars, setting another record for the commercial space business. Wow. That's a lot of zeros. I know. That's really the only way to say it is just, <laughs> wow. There was one more launch. It may not be as exciting as the others, but Japan, while we're talking about other countries, had their own launch as well on June 1st. This was the launch of an H-2A rocket launching from the Tanegashima Space Center in southern Japan. This was actually launching one of their own built GPS satellites. They are hoping to add, in addition to the American GPS satellite network that they use, to finally add their own satellites into this network for a more improved GPS. They're hoping to reduce location errors in Japan to a few centimeters from as much as the 10 meters that it's currently at now. That's impressive. The satellite was called Michibiki. <laughs> I know, that is, uh, so that is a really great name. <laughs> but yes, this is part of the Michibiki system, and there are at least two more satellites that are scheduled to launch by next spring to complete this system. I'm just wondering if this satellite has a really cute little mascot, as lots of things in Japan do. Just imagine <laughs> it. <laughs> if not, we need these things. We need a little mascot, a little Michibichi. <laughs> listeners, get on it. <laughs> yes. I'm sure there are people who would actually be kind enough to draw as one of those if there isn't, but I would love to see what a Michibiki would look like. So yes, we want to congratulate India, the European Space Agency, and Japan all on successful launches within five days of each other. Now, in other launch news for an upcoming launch, recently we announced the return of the X-37B after over 700 days in space. Well, they're hoping to get the X-37B up in space again, possibly as soon as two months from now. Of course, that could always change because as you know, the X-37B is a secretive military payload that looks very similar to the space shuttle and lands a lot like a space shuttle. What it does, we don't actually know. <laughs> All we do know is that it has previously launched always aboard a United Launch Alliance Atlas V 501 configuration. However, they have announced that the next X-37B launch will be aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9. Part of that they attributed to the launch rate increasing this year, which so far there have already been over seven launches within the first half of the year, with one more currently scheduled, I should add, for June 17th making it, I believe, eight launches in the first six months. Which is definitely, definitely good, and a significant increase. Um, those of you who remember that I am a PhD student and doing research, um, looking at sort of launch capabilities and how often the commercial space industry is launching is part of my current research. And um, right now, ULA from 2006 has something like 85% of all commercial launches. Um, so seeing an increase from, from SpaceX is, is good for the industry and, and will certainly reflect the more diverse launch vehicles out there for customers. Yeah, I mean, this is this is crazy. SpaceX, we've criticized them before in the past when they've made a mistake, but these last seven or eight launches have been absolutely amazing. They've been relatively on time, you know, barring weather delays and things like that. They've all worked perfectly so far this year. And the fact that the Air Force is noticing that. Heck, they launched one of the NROL satellites earlier this year, too. So now that they have that military contract, it seems like the military is actually exercising it and using it, which I think is great for SpaceX. And I'm interested to see how these other companies like ULA and all the other private launchers have to change their model. Because we've talked about this before with the relanding the boosters and everything, that the cost is coming down. 
especially for SpaceX, and everyone else is probably going to have to follow along now that they're losing business to SpaceX, which I think is starting to show a change of pace. Usually it's been the other way around. Well, it's the trend in the industry. Even, you know, ULA's next rocket is going to be a reusable rocket. So it's it's the trend in the industry, and it's a great trend because those are some of the largest costs. Exactly. And I mean, this is going to be exciting to see. Now, we talked about that increased launch rate there with SpaceX, and that includes their most recent launch, which I was at covering it for Talking Space. And that was the CRS-11 launch, the 11th SpaceX resupply mission to the International Space Station. The launch successfully occurred Saturday, June 3rd at 5.07 p.m. Eastern Time. The mission carried over 6,000 pounds of science experiments and equipment to the International Space Station. The Dragon was then captured on Monday and berthed to the ISS full of all of those supplies and experiments. This was the 100th launch from Launch Pad 39A, the 6th SpaceX launch from that launch pad, and flew the first ever reused Dragon capsule. I should specify when I say reused, that means that most of the parts on board it were previously flown. That doesn't mean they took the entire capsule as is. Apparently they've been taking bits and pieces from all different places, but they put it together, the main capsule being from the CRS-4 mission. All that is now at the International Space Station. That's very exciting. I mean, as we just said, reusability is the future. And it was really great, Sawyer, that you could be there to cover the launch for us. Oh, me too. Which, speaking of the reusability, I think that's a good place to start. In the press conference, uh, I had an interesting question. I was wondering, well, they talked about how the first stage reusability is a big deal and how that's been saving them money. That's going to be super cost effective now to land it, refurbish it, bring it back. We've talked about in the past how much that actually is in terms of cost of the launch and what this will mean for cost savings. So they've worked on starting to recover the fairings. They've worked on starting to recover the first stage. Now they're talking about reflying the Dragon. They've said they may refly Dragon capsules for the rest of their CRS-1 contract, which has nine missions left in it, I should add. But I was wondering, what does that mean for cost savings? And here is SpaceX's Hans Koningsman with his response to that very question. And regarding regarding the booster and um, the money money you save and and these things, um, this is a little bit more complicated because we did invest in the technology and we we paid um, we invested basically a lot of money on our side to perform tests. Um, we um, you know we, we, if you recall the first the first missions were pretty uh, traumatic and uh, spectacular, but. Um, largely unsuccessful before we turned it around. And, and then, of course, these, these things cost um, money and uh, damage needs to be repaired. And so I, I, want, I want to say, basically say we invested a significant amount of money that we need to recover over the next couple of missions before, in, in my opinion, we can, we can uh, reach out and, 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 and you know, make that assessment and then actually uh, pass this on uh, really. Uh, this, this is a long-term long goal. This is not something that, um, you know, works the second time uh, or the third time. I think this is something that you need to look a um, couple of years in advance, uh, you know, maybe the 10th flight, maybe the 20th flight. That's when you finally uh, could see some, some uh, money saved. That's really interesting, Sawyer. Sort of the first time we've heard a number on on that sort of when are we going to see profit from this or some money saved? Yeah, no, I mean, we've been wondering that for a while. We've talked about, well, we know what percentage of the rocket it is, you know, to reuse that first stage. We know what it's going to eventually bring the cost down to, but we never really knew if the costs were down yet. And I mean, I get this the first time that they're reflying it, so there's going to be a lot to learn. They're going to have to look at you know, what worked, what didn't, what held up, what needs to be refurbished. And then once they do that, they can start working on streamlining it and everything, which I didn't realize that was going to be 10 to 20 missions to get to that point. Me either. But it's really good to sort of know like, okay, you know, when when do you start seeing cost savings? When can we expect to to see these these cheaper, more affordable flights that, that SpaceX has really made a cornerstone of its business model. Because while the costs are down if you're choosing a reusable booster now, there's still, you know, it's still a fairly significant cost to launch something. Oh, without a doubt. 
That was a really great question. It really, really got a great answer with some information that I think a lot of us in the who watch the industry are were really wanting to know. Thank you. Yeah, I know I wanted to know it. That's why I was thankfully able to ask it. <laughs> and you also got for this launch and landing some really great audio too. Yes, because speaking of reusability and you know refurbishment and things like that, this was not a previously flown first stage. However. They were continuing with their process of re-landing the first stage. This one was a landing at landing zone one. I asked Hans about this afterwards as well, is how do they decide between barge or land landing? Now, obviously the main factor is fuel. If they need more fuel to get it into a higher orbit or something like that, then they'll put it on a barge. If they need less, then they'll land it at landing zone one at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station on land, like this mission did. Apparently, they're working out the schedule so that they don't follow back-to-back -back barge landings, things like that. So they'll launch a heavier payload followed by a lighter payload, followed by heavier, followed by lighter, so that way they can alternate between barge, land, barge, land, and they can take the time to refurbish each. Uh, I was about to ask if there was a reason for that, but you... you... Got my question, answered it before I could ask. <laughs> There's a reason they haven't taken my press credentials away yet. I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> so anyway, without further ado, this one they chose to do a land landing. And I'll get back to that landing in just a second. But first, of course, let's get to everyone's favorite part, or at least mine. I present to you what it sounded like to be at the launch of CRS-11. This was recorded from the Launch Complex 39A press site just over three miles away from launch pad 39A. Someone had said that it's going to be a little louder from the press site than any other launch we've seen from SpaceX before. Didn't quite believe them. Then I heard this. You know, I have said it that I see a rocket and my soul sings, but I gotta be honest, I hear one and it's singing just as loud. <laughs> <laughs> Something about hearing a rocket just makes me so happy. And I, I don't know if you could tell compared to past audio. I know having recorded many of them, it stands out to me, but just the reverberation effect from it. It was a little cloudy, so that does affect it in some ways, but my jaw as it launched was literally open. And again, this is my 10th launch, ninth launch I've covered as press. My, you know, more than that I've seen or attempted to see. But my jaw was open because it was that loud. I've heard shuttle come off that pad, and that was extremely loud. So I'll admit I didn't get the same vibration that I got from shuttle. But this has to be one of, if not the loudest launch I have ever heard. You know... What it reminds me of, have you seen a West Coast launch from like Vandenberg? I have not. It sounds a lot like that and that you hear those launches forever because of the way that they launch a lot of times. And I've, I've, yeah, it's, it reminds me of that, just like the launch and the reverberations and that 
sound just goes on and on and is loud. You know, long after you can't see the rocket anymore, you can still hear it. So, it's, again, it just brings back good memories being there and feeling it. And I'm sure if you had your stereo speakers cranked up, you could feel it as well. Which, by the way, if you didn't, rewind, go back a few minutes, <laughs> listen to that again, crank up your car speaker, roll up the windows and just feel the reverberation, crank up the bass, whatever you can do. I will warn you, though, if you did crank it up for that, it may startle you a little bit on this next one, because this is the first time in Talking Space history that we have ever had the audio of a landing of a SpaceX Falcon 9 booster. This one was quite bizarre to watch, looking up in the sky, trying to find it, trying to find it. Couldn't really spot it, so I decided to watch the few NASA social people that were nearby looking up. Their heads were moving around. Once they all started to look in the same general direction, I knew where to look. <laughs> I look <laughs> Smart. up, and all of a sudden, I see this orange glow coming through the clouds. And I realized that was the second of three burns as it makes its way down. There's the boost back, there's the entry burn, and then there's the landing burn. This was the entry burn. I tried to get pictures of it, but it was so quick that it, all the pictures came out blurry. Then it just disappeared and couldn't find it again. So I don't know where to look. A lot of us don't know where to look because we haven't seen that many landings because there haven't been that many landings. So we're looking, we're looking. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this bird or something that's moving really quickly. Then I see its engines ignite. Then I realized that was our Falcon 9 <laughs> first stage coming back. A different kind of bird. Yeah, it was a falcon, so it's a bird. Just Metal bird, metal bird breathing fire as it does its landing burn to slow itself down and this thing it is flying down it is speeding like speedy gonzalez like roadrunner going i was waiting for the meat meat to come out of it <laughs> but it was just so quick the way it was shooting down like an arrow almost i it seemed like it was going faster coming down than it was going up and listening to when they said it gone transonic and that you know 20 30 seconds later it was on the ground Makes sense that it was going that fast. So it starts to land. It goes behind the trees, which I know the landing zone is just behind those trees. I was right next to the official countdown clock, which now has a video screen on it. I turn to the video screen. I see it land. And then I brace myself. And I still jumped in the air, even after bracing myself for the sonic booms that were to come. So I'm going to tell you to brace yourself. Fair warning, you may still jump. So yeah, three sonic booms. I'd heard that it would be two. Some people said it was three. Apparently that third one is just the sound bouncing off the ground and then coming back up again, still through the speed of sound. So apparently there are only two, but you hear that third one because of reverberation. So cool. But it was, again, anticipating it. Still didn't expect that. I had a friend who was over right near the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Missile Museum. Apparently he was saying that it started knocking his shorts back. His shorts were literally flapping in the breeze as a result of the booms. Wow. It was, uh, it was quite unexpected. Even expected, it was quite unexpected. <laughs> and uh, I hope everyone still has all their shorts intact who's listening. <laughs> it was just amazing to hear that. And then to see this charred little stick firing his way back down is... So cool. And then the fact that there it is on the screen landed, and then two or three seconds later, boom, ba boom. It was an amazing experience. This is so great. I mean, we haven't even started talking about like what CRS-11 was actually even carrying, and I'm already excited just hearing about the landing and the reusability and the launch and, and sort of, you know, what SpaceX is doing and, and, you know, what we can expect, you know, but we haven't even gotten yet to, to the mission you know, what they were actually launching. So there were some really cool things that were going up on this one. Uh, there is the NICER experiment, which is the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer. This is the first mission 
solely devoted to studying neutron stars and what they're made of. That will be going aboard the International Space Station. Also on board, there were a few animal experiments. One of them involved rodents, and that was called Rodent Research 5. It is the fifth time they have done this, and it involves exposing rats and mice to microgravity and studying their change in bone health, just like what would happen with you know, astronauts that stay aboard the International Space Station, as well as people who on Earth may have bone-wasting diseases due to extended bed rest and normal aging. There was another animal experiment, though, that really surprised me. And I'm not even going to explain this one because it's so crazy behind this one. Uh, I am going to let the lead behind the project called Fruit Fly Lab 2 discuss this. So with that, I present to you Dr. Karen Accor. All right, so can you talk a little bit about the fruit fly experiment going up on CRS-11? I can. So this is, a, this is a culmination, an experiment that is the culmination of a couple years of testing and, and refining the boxes that we're sending up. But these are flies that are going up in self-contained boxes. There will be 15 vials with food and flies or eggs in each box. We will have six boxes for a total of 90 vials, somewhere around four to 6,000 eggs and 500 adult flies. And we expect to get back even more than that as adults. Um, the eggs will hatch on the ISS. They will become larvae. They will become pupa and then eclose as adults. And those adults will spend essentially half of their adult life in microgravity and then come back and we will be able to look at them to see what happens to their hearts. So we have a whole host of assays that we do to try and get a picture of what's going on so we can um, we, we can do climbing assays which gives us an idea of their skeletal muscle function and also heart function indirectly but then we dissect them open we film their hearts beating because, like our hearts, they're myogenic. They beat without nervous input. And then we have a program that analyzes those movies. We um, then can take those same hearts. We can stain them and look at the structure, the ultrastructure of the myocardial cells that make up the heart, um, which gives us a whole host of additional information. And then in another subset, we can take the hearts out and analyze their gene expression to see what's happening to the proteins that are being made um, ultimately in these heart cells. So one thing I had no idea of before looking at this experiment was how similar the heart is of a fruit fly to a human. Can you go into how they're similar? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty impressive. In fact, they're in many respects more similar to human hearts than mouse or a rat. Um, and that's basically because the rat and mouse hearts speed about 10 times faster than our hearts. Um, and that means the ion channels, which are important proteins in, in electrically excitable cells, those ion channels have to be different in a mouse heart to allow it to beat so fast. And pretty much the same channels are in the fly heart as in your heart. And some of the key ones, like the HER, what's called the HERG channel or the KCNQ channel, are targets for antiarrhythmia drugs in humans. So those are not in the rat, and they are in the, the fly. And there's, there's also about 75% of disease-causing genes that are represented in the fly that are the same genes in you that cause problems. And so we can use this as a model to understand what they do. So... Do you think that this may have some benefit to cardiac patients here on Earth? And if so, how? Absolutely. Um, well, there's a whole host of ways, but I can tell you about one collaboration we have right now. Um, we have a collaboration with the Mayo Clinic, and they have a specialty in trying to understand children born with what's called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. The left side of the heart doesn't develop. And so these children need a series of operations and ultimately a heart transplant to survive. We would like to know what causes this congenital heart defect, how we might identify it and treat it before it causes this problem with heart development, and potentially how to treat children who have been born with it who are now in their 30s as a result of these operations. How can we help them to continue to live without requiring a heart transplant. 
that's just one example. Um, we're also trying to understand how ion channels work together. There's a whole host of cardiomyopathies that are caused by misfunctioning ion channels. And there are plenty of drugs that have been developed that could target those channels, but we need to know how they work together in order to understand what drug treatments to best use. So is that one of the main things that you'll be looking for when these flies come back, is those ion channels, or are there other things in particular that are really what you're looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. So two sets of flies we're sending up are a control and an ion channel mutant, that KCNQ channel mutant. So that's going to give us some interesting information about um, the impact of, of channel dysfunction. In fact, KCNQ channels are most often a problem when you hear about an athlete dropping dead on a basketball floor. Usually that's the first symptom of a mutation in the KCNQ channel in this person. What um, is a KCNQ channel, if you don't mind me interrupting? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, it's a particular type of voltage-dependent potassium channel. So your heart has to contract, and there are ion channels that open and, and cause electrical changes that make your heart contract. But then... Once it's contracted, its job isn't done. It has to relax and refill. And it turns out there's a whole bunch more channels that are involved in the relaxation of the heart. And those are all these different potassium channels, and KCNQ is one of them, and HERG is another. And how they work together to allow your heart to contract, or relax rather, is really what determines um, your heart rate and your heart function. So they're very important channels, and that's why drug companies target a lot of them um, in, in arrhythmia patients. So when you say you're sending up ones that have mutant KCNQs, right. what does that mean? So that means that this channel doesn't function properly, and these hearts are prone to arrhythmia, just like that athlete that has a sudden a cardiac event and drops over on a basketball court. These hearts beat very rapidly and then stop beating for a while. Now, in a rat, it would kill the rat, but in a fruit fly, they get their oxygen through a separate system. Their hearts are probably involved just in moving nutrients, hormones, and things like that around in the body, and they get their oxygen through a def different system. So we can actually study these misfunctioning hearts, which we could never do in a rat because it would kill the rat. That's amazing. Again, things you would never think with a fruit fly. Exactly. Uh, so how long will these guys be up on the space station? They will be up there um, roughly 30 days, and then there's like two and a half days at each end for transit. So I think the total mission is 35 days, all things going properly. Um, so the flies take about 10 days from egg to adult. Um, we're going to try and slow them down. So this is the only astronaut involvement we have. They're going to take these boxes that we're sending up and put them in an incubator that lowers the temperature and that slows down the aging process in these flies. So we'll try to do that to keep them from getting too old because just like humans their hearts get worse with age. So we want to separate that effect from a microgravity effect. So they'll be, they'll be in these incubators for the duration of the flight then they'll come out, go back in the their travel case and come back and splash down off Long Beach in the Pacific Ocean. Well, the best of luck to you and the Flystronauts. Thank you. <laughs> what an excellent example about how science done in space can have significant impacts and effects here on Earth. I mean, that's just, it's amazing. And I was really excited when she mentioned that when they're studying the hearts and they're looking at, um, at gene expression, they're studying the epigenetics, which is a huge field of research in genetics right now. Um, for those of you who are listening who don't um, sort of follow maybe some medical stuff, but gene expression or epigenetics as it's called is what happens when certain factors, um, and these can be environmental, uh, hereditary, cause certain genes that you have to either express themselves or not. So uh, it's well known that children of people who went through famine will act in the same way as people who went through that did because there's a gene expression gets turned on and can affect the way that you view food and hunger. Um, so it's really exciting. This is really cutting edge research even here on Earth. And so it's really exciting that it's cutting edge research also in space. 
So I heard that and I was like, oh, epigenetics, that's yeah. so exciting. And, and, you know, there was a lot of technical stuff in there, which hopefully was able to simplify a bit, but it was just amazing hearing how the similarities to the human heart and the fruit fly heart and that, you know, they can send them up with some defects that humans have here on Earth and emphasizing again that, yes, this is great for astronauts in space, but all this research isn't just for space stuff. It's to help people back here on Earth. And that's spinoffs at its finest. Exactly. It really is. And not just research, but why our space program is so vital and important. Because it has real significant impact here on Earth. Exactly. And I call them flystronauts. She called them drosonauts, I believe, because <laughs> they're from Drosophilia melanogaster is their genus species. So That's great. I like flystronauts better. I, I will post a picture in the show notes of what these little fruit flies look like inside their tiny canister, which as I was sitting there, these fruit flies, which are relatives of the ones that are now in space, were staring at me the whole time. So. <laughs> oh, I'm happy to send them to space because if anyone's ever had fruit flies in their kitchen, you know they're a bear to get rid of. <laughs> yeah, the, the astronauts on board the space station can deal with them. That's right. <laughs> send all my problems to space. <laughs> Another experiment that's semi-astronaut involved that's going up there is already partially up on the International Space Station, and that is called the APH. It stands for the Advanced Plant Habitat. So we already know about veggie. We've talked about that before. Veggie is where they're growing plants and things aboard the International Space Station. Recently, Peggy Whitson had a picture of herself eating some uh, Chinese cabbage that they had grown up there. But apparently... The growing isn't going all that easy and isn't all that great. It's very inexact, I guess, in the way that they do it, at least as inexact as it can be for a science experiment. So they finished sending all the pieces up on this mission for this experiment, which what it will do is it will allow scientists to change the lights, it will allow them to change the environment, there are cameras monitoring everything, and from the ground they can decide to control how much water goes in, if a water hits a certain point, then to turn it off, which they can't necessarily do when they're just watering it on board the space station. So there's not so much crew involvement, which they were saying might be, you know, a mental thing, because it's great to be able to experience greenery and grow it and things like that. Cool. But it's just fascinating the control that they have over these. And obviously this will have effects for future long duration missions to Mars and even lunar colonies and things like that. Exactly. I'm just having this imagination, like, what if we're doing, like, long-duration space missions and our crews are asleep, but what if we had a completely automated, like, plant system so you could actually, like, grow and harvest and store food while a crew is in transit? That'd be, that'd be really cool. Okay. That's, and, um, hey, I should add one of the other people that we talked to, uh, he mentioned about that, oh. how they're using basically these farmer robots that will go and when it's time, they can start harvesting and collecting. I want a collecting. farmer robot. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Gardeners everywhere. As crazy as it is, they were literally talking about growing potatoes, even in the advanced plant habitat. Wow. That's just, this is, I mean, really amazing. And and these are the things that have to happen if we want to become, you know, Earth independent, right? If we want to leave this planet, if we want to travel the solar system or even just go to Mars, these are the kinds of systems that we have to figure out now. Plus, then you become Mark Watney because literally growing potatoes in space. <laughs> exactly. Now, a lot of these, of course, are life science experiments, but there's a few that are meant for pretty much just space. Now, one of the really interesting ones is actually going to be in the trunk, one called ROSA. And no, that is not some woman that you need to know about. ROSA stands for the Roll Out Solar Array and is being used to help improve solar panels by making them more compact and as I talked to Jeremy Bannock, who is working on this project, he was saying that this could potentially be used for missions around the Earth and well beyond it. How they did it is so crazy simple. It's amazing I didn't think of it, but thankfully they did. And here's Rosa. So can you talk a little bit about what Rosa is? So the rollout solar array, uh, really the goal of the experiment is to unfurl for the first time in space a new solar panel technology. 
and it's a solar panel technology that's built on new deployment mechanisms and really the payoff is 20% reduced mass, 400% volume savings, and the ability to scale solar arrays much larger than we can do today. Yeah, because a lot of the solar arrays of today are very rigid and firm and things like that, so how does that work off of that? Right, yeah, so the existing solar array panels today are constructed as square plates that are accordion folded together with mechanical hinges. You can only scale those solar arrays so large before you get such a long stack of plates that you just can't fit it into a launch vehicle. That's really what it comes down to. So you have to go to a more efficient structure, which is a tension structure. And that's why we've gone to this flexible blanket approach and um, these high-performance, compactly stowed rollable tubes that uh, can stow this blanket and then deploy it with its own energy. So... Because I think back with the solar panels, especially to STS-120 when Scott Parazinski was out there trying to repair it with all the electrical risk and everything with that on that hardness. How do you account for, you know, breakage, tearage, and how does it account for that? Sure. So the the solar panels on station actually do use a flexible blanket approach. They're one of the few that does. It's a great structure. The challenge is the column, the truss that uh, station uses to deploy that wing is just way too big for any satellite or anything other than shuttle to launch it. Um, so we've shrunk down that that structural mechanism. So, but regarding kind of tear and, and, and robustness and, and breakage and things, um, frankly, that's part of our experiment is to make sure that once this blanket goes through the violence of launch and deployment that the the interconnects don't tear apart and the cells don't don't uh, the brittle cells don't crack and, and that kind of thing so that's part of our experiment so since it isn't those hard square plates how does it actually produce energy is it still the same type of photovoltaic cells or it is exactly the same actually the cells are still stiff and rigid and brittle just like with a rigid panel array. But we put those rigid cells on a flexible substrate, a lot like a carpet backing, just an open weave mesh, and that allows the cells to bend in between where they're joined to the blanket. So the individual cells are rigid, but the overall blanket is flexible. And you mentioned it's self-deploying. So it doesn't need the same spring mechanism and all of that like you have on station or with some of these other vehicles? That's right. It's deployed with its own energy. So the booms are the springs, essentially. Wow. That is impressive. So where do you see this being used? So there's a lot of different applications, both for Earth-orbiting satellites and interplanetary exploration. So the, the DoD has... Uh, has invested in this technology and uh, commercial space has invested. So some of the applications include just getting more bandwidth on a commercial commsat for satellite TV or satellite internet or com bandwidth for a, for a soldier on the ground. That's one application. Another is to um, put higher power on a GPS satellite so that would make the GPS signal more reliable and available for everybody on the globe. Um, you could also use this rollout solar array to augment the current st- space station arrays um, as they age, and and um, uh, you could unroll this Rosa wing right on top of the existing station arrays. Um, another application is uh, that could be scaled up to much larger sizes and used for solar electric propulsion, which requires hundreds of kilowatts and could be used for interplanetary exploration on these big tugs or for LEO to GEO transfer for the case of DOD satellites. So there's a lot of different applications for this solar array. Is that because you're able to pack more cells into an area, or why is it so much more powerful? Well, exactly right. So the stowed volume I mentioned is 400% better than rigid panel arrays. Just by rolling everything up into this really thin blanket, we can just pack so much more power into the same volume that that uh, pays off in so many different ways. 
we've got missions now like Juno that are out there using their solar panels, and then we have these other older, farther out missions that are stuck using RTGs. Do you mm -hmm. see this as a possible replacement for RTGs? I think it is a, a, a potential, there's potential use here for long duration interplanetary kinds of missions. Um, you still need to bring a really large array along with you, so it's hard to beat the compactness of an RTG, but, um, but certainly um, it's much better than, than traditional, traditional fuels in that solar electric propulsion doesn't need much fuel at all. All you need to do is bring along a big array. So, Solar electric propulsion. That's right. So it uses ion thrusters. And um, I'm not real qualified to speak intelligently on it much more than that. But it's, uh, it's, it's a great new form of propulsion that um, certainly NASA has been looking into, uh, STMD, as well as the Air Force. And this has a chance to bring some of the power that it might need. Exactly. So Rosa scales up to really large sizes, and you need you need really high power for these solar electric propulsion engines. So Rosa is one of the few solutions out there that could actually get to those high power levels. So something that can augment the past, like the space station, and help propel the future. Exactly right. Do you need to write taglines for you guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, this confirms my theory that blankets make everything better. <laughs> And also, apparently, I'm now offering my services as a tagline writer. So. It, was, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just amazing to think, and I'm going to post a picture of this as well in the show notes. The material, it's essentially, if you've ever seen the rubber underneath a bath mat in a bathroom or that kind of mesh-like material that they'll put backsplash tiles on in a kitchen, that's the material that they're using. It's so bendable and flexible, it can roll up basically into a tube and they just take these solar panels, basically cut them in half a little bit, make them fold in on themselves. It's brilliant. It's crazy. That's great. Good. Blankets make everything better. Oh, I guess that's just a blanket statement that it makes everything better. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sawyer, for playing along. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, there's so many different experiments that are going up on this that sometimes we forget what experiments are already on board the International Space Station. So I got a chance to talk with the ISS assistant program scientist, Camille Elaine, and she filled us in on some of the amazing things that are happening on board the space station, along with what's going up on this a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit about how much science is going up on the CRS-11 mission? Oh my gosh, so much science. We have at least 4,500 pounds of not just research supplies, but new science investigations going up on board, including about 2,000 pounds of instruments that are flying in the trunk of the Dragon, the three instruments, the rollout solar array, the multi-user system for Earth sensing, and the NISA system, which is going to study um, neutron stars. So those three are flying in the trunk of the Dragon. So a lot of science. Not just new science, but supplies to support ongoing science. What are some of those projects that are being supported with this? So some of the human research that actually we don't talk about, but we have supplies going up to support the astronauts do, being used as subjects uh, for human research. One in particular is called Fluid Shifts, and that was an investigation that started with Scott Kelly during the one-year mission. And what it's doing is measuring the shift of fluids from the lower part of the body to the upper part of the body that's that's causing the intracranial pressure in the brain and leading to the impairments of the vision that the astronauts are undergoing. And so that's just one of the human uh, research experiments that's ongoing that supplies will be flying up to support. And that's also partly why the astronauts seem to have puffy heads. Eggs, that is exactly why they have puffy heads. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out why now. <laughs> So, in terms of science that's been going on on board the station, mm -hmm. are there any experiments that may be coming back with this that mm -hmm. have been up there for a while that are... Yes! So we, oh my gosh, there are quite a few. We have some stem cell investigations that have been flying up for a while that's coming back. We have a rodent research nine that has, um, that has the... the not the mice, live mice are coming back, but the samples are coming back. Um, we have 
uh, well, Rosa, for example, that's going up is also coming back in the trunk of dragon and it will be disposed. It won't come back to Earth. It will be disposed in the Earth's atmosphere. It will burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so there, we have about a thousand pounds of, of sam- biological samples and other payloads coming back from previous missions. Right. Uh, Peggy Whitson recently had her mission extended mm-hmm. by a bit. Mm-hmm. Has that given you more opportunity to add new science experiments or add, you know work on more science experiments with her having a longer duration? Absolutely. What we found is that without Peggy being there, we were going to have not enough hours devoted to doing science experiments with only two crew available. Um, and so with Peggy being able to be extended on the U.S. operating side, we're able to not just add experiments, but also there are some experiments that the investigators are adding additional run times, for example, or looking at different parameters. Um, and so, yeah, we have additional crew time that we can do a lot more science. And that will go for when we have the fourth crew on board on the U.S. OS side, too. And I would imagine that'll not just be because of the extra time that she'll be spending there, but also from her past experience and how much time she has spent. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, and she's well-trained. I mean, Peggy is well-trained. And so things like rodent research that she was already trained on, and we sending up this in rodent research five, she's already, you know, qualified to be able to handle those um, investigations. Now, you mentioned that, you know, when we eventually get up to four crew members, which we've talked to Bill Gerstmeyer about Mm -hmm. that goal coming before. Mm -hmm. But what do you do now when you have fewer people on board the space station with five total and two Americans at the moment? So we can't do as much science as we would like to. Well, we try to do as much as we can with five. And then when we have a lot of visiting vehicles, that takes up a lot of crew time, right? They have a lot of robotic operations, not just the birthing of the vehicle, but a robotic operation deploying all these instruments. So that's a lot of crew time taken up. And so there's not we can't dedicate as much time to utilization as we'd like to, um, but we are excited to have the fourth crew member up. But in the meantime, it hasn't affected science in a major way. No, it hasn't affected science in a major way. We're still being able to. Actually, with Peggy being up there, and she's so efficient, we're actually going through all the reserve science we have. So how we how we actually kind of prioritize the science that's done on board is that we have high priority science that must be done that we promise the investigators that will be done but then there's some science that's we talk about below the line which is like reserve science that is not as high priority well we are going to get to go through all that reserve science with peggy up there so yeah so no the research is not affected at all that's amazing how do you determine what goes above the line and below the line in terms of science priority so Mm -hmm. it's going to be a difficult decision well i talked about that earlier we rely on the sponsors of the investigation so let me start with the international partners all our international partners have national goals that they need to support so their science priorities are based on what is important to them nationally so for example Jax is really big into biological research they have to show the benefits of and the money they're spending on space station research that has a benefit to the people, not just in Japan, but across the Pan-Asian region. So from a partner perspective, they decide. Within NASA, we have cases as a sponsor that they decide what's important from a U.S. national lab perspective, and they prioritize their science based on those high-valued research, like protein crystal growth, for example. Earth remote sensing is another one for them. Um, On the NASA-sponsored side, we rely on some of the mission directorates, science mission directorate, um, space technology mission directorate, and the human research program to determine what is the high-valued research that needs to be done to to foster future space exploration, which is the job NASA is in. Mm -hmm. So that's how we determine the priority of the research. If you had to pick one experiment, I know this may be hard, on board the space station that people probably don't know about but should, what do you think oh that would be? Oh, my gosh. All right, if not one, you know, the top two or three. Well, I mean, the, the t- high visibility 
research of course a lot of the rodent research uh, people are really interested in just because we use rodents as a model for human understanding what is happening in the human body and the adaptations to space so a lot and that that research also has a benefit to life here on earth so it has those dual purposes so that's a big deal um the alpha magnetic spectrometer that astrophysics investigation that we're talking about you know answering the questions of the origins of the universe really high visibility and we are constantly talking about that because it is you know it's one of those really interesting payloads so those are two of over i mean Right now, we have about 220 investigations going on wow. during fi increment 51, 52, over a course of a six-month period. So, there's so much. <laughs> and that's only over we have six plan, months. That's just over six months. We have planned growth experiments. I mean, stem cell experiments, colloidal experiment, material research. I mean, just, it's, ugh, it's a lot. Wow. <laughs> People want to find out about these experiments. Where can they go? www.nasa.gov slash ISS dash science. You will find everything you want to know about not just the science that's going on now, but all the science we've done since the beginning of Space Station. And that website is a treasure trove. And if what she talked about was any indication, there's so much going on. It was such a great interview. She was so delighted. You could tell that she genuinely loves what she does and loves talking about the science and the experiments. And that's what made that such a great interview, in my opinion. And she was just a ball of fun, too. Yeah, she really sounded like it. And it was really interesting for me to hear about, you know, just Peggy. She's like just loving on her like yes we get to do all these things not only do we get to take care of our science priorities but we get to dive into our reserve priorities because you know she's so efficient and she can get things done and that's just I love to hear that that's great I mean obviously Peggy Whitson is amazing but now I'm just like girl yes <laughs> I mean, yes, we already knew that she was awesome and one of the greatest astronauts. And if this doesn't seal the deal, just hearing how much she doesn't like they were saying, you know, they were going to be short on crew, but now they're going into their reserve science. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I live in Pepsi territory. But... <laughs> oh, boy. This will stay aboard the International Space Station until, as of right now, July 2nd. I say as of right now because the Cygnus resupply vehicle, which was supposed to stay on station for a month longer, ended up actually coming down early. Keep in mind, this mission, which did launch on the 3rd, was originally scheduled for June 1st at 5.47 p.m. Eastern Time. However, due to lightning within 10 miles of the launch, with less than 30 minutes to go, that one was scrubbed. As a result, it turns out they had a one-day window and decided to undock Cygnus early. So Cygnus, as this is being recorded, is still orbiting around the Earth doing its fire experiments before it comes back crashing down. And of course, we will keep covering all of these launches that have these great backstories behind it. Because as great as the launch audio is, and to finally have audio of a landing, there's nothing like being able to talk to the scientists and hear what's going up on these missions and learning about what it's doing, not just for astronauts in space, but for us back here on Earth. And I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about it as much as I enjoyed going to gather it, plus, you know, seeing a launch. <laughs> it's great. And it's, you know, it's what Talking Space does best, really getting into the stories behind the headlines. Exactly. Pictures of this will be in the show notes. Also posted a bunch of them on Twitter as it was happening. Now, the one final thing I want to address before we end this episode. We got so many listener letters after the last few episodes regarding our thoughts on SpaceX. And I promised you that I would give you my honest opinion on SpaceX public relations after seeing them and speaking with them and working with them at this event. My opinion has definitely changed. From the first time that we saw them, of which they definitely failed and they definitely, you know, rubbed people the wrong way. The people this time were a lot nicer. Admittedly, most of this was handled by NASA. A lot of this, in fact, was handled by NASA. But the SpaceX people that were there were kind and funny and 
were very helpful in terms of giving information. And in fact, I'm in the process of working with them to hopefully get someone from SpaceX on here so we can have a fair and honest discussion. So to everybody out there who's calling us SpaceX haters and think that we're just bashing them unfairly, there's my honest opinion, is that they have changed. Seeing them is a different story. And of course, seeing their rocket succeed is one thing. Having it succeed seven or eight times already this year, now getting the X-37B contract, you know, things have certainly improved. Of course, if they fail, we're still going to be strict on them, as with anybody, NASA, Boeing, ULA, anyone. But if you think we were being unfair to them, I do apologize. And this is my honest opinion of seeing SpaceX public relations after seeing them and their rocket and their engineers and everything at work. They've got heart. They've got passion. And just like us, they want to succeed. And like I said, we all want to see all of them succeed. And seeing that launch go off and land again, I call that success. And with that, I think that's a perfect way to bring our CRS-11 special to its conclusion. Thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson. It was a pleasure to be back on the podcast after a break to handle some stuff at school. So I can't wait uh, to get this episode out. And Sawyer, thanks so much for covering this. It's been really interesting hearing everything that you that you got out there. Twist my arm. I have to go to a rocket launch to talk to scientists. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was not a problem at all. And a big thank you to everybody, as always, at NASA Kennedy Space Center and SpaceX Public Relations who made this possible and who were kind enough to give us all the interviews. And thank you to all the scientists and engineers who took the time to talk to us here at Talking Space. We'll be back with a regular news show next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.